John 13, verses 21 through 38. And it reads, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he, why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're in a series of messages on the Gospel of John. We've come to a pivotal point in the Gospel, Gospel of John chapter 13, as we saw last week. It is that transition period where Jesus has transitioned out of his public ministry, and now he is into and deliberate spending time with his disciples as he prepares them for his departure and prepares them for what is ahead and prepares them for their leadership and service uh, to the church. It is a vivid reminder to us, beloved, of the love and the mercy of Christ that he has for his disciples indeed that he has for us even this morning. Last week we were reminded, right, that a picture, or in, in our case, in most of our cases, a video is worth a thousand words. Showing, as we were reminded last week, is often more impactful than just telling, whether it is a, a home or car repair, whether it's driving directions or cooking or barbecuing. I am reminded that I learned how to smoke ribs by watching Steve Reichlin 
on um, PBS. Most of y'all probably don't even know who Steve Reichlin is, but let me tell you, he's legit. <laughs> and I learned how to smoke ribs watching PBS television. And yet, while we admit to the impact and the importance of, of show and, and videos, uh, what we don't want to do is dismiss. Uh, we don't want to disregard the importance of telling, the importance of command. Telling is important. <clears throat> the spoken and written word remain, mainstays in our lives, beloved. Make no mistake uh, about it. And this is especially true when it comes to the things of God. The Bible that you have on your iPads and that you have on your phones is the revelation of God written. It is a revelation of God written, and therefore it is meant to be read it is meant to be heard. Preaching and teaching and verbal communication and proclamation is still, according to the Scriptures, the primary means ordained by God for the communication and revelation of His redemption. The Bible still says, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. The Bible says, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, that there will always be a need and the calling for teachers and preachers of the gospel. And therefore, for all of our advancements in pictures, and for all of our advancement in videos, we are still called upon not just to see, but to hear Jesus. To hear Jesus. We have to hear the Word of God. See it, yes. But commands must be heard to be obeyed. Deuteronomy chapter 6, again in verse 4, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Hear. Hear, O Israel, what thus says the Lord. And so when Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he shared that last meal together, it's important to understand that even with the foot washing, it was not just show. It was show and tell. 
It was not just showing. Jesus also told. He also commanded. He also said, Hear, O disciples, what thus says the Lord. Now, the scene was dramatic, right? We remember it from last week. It was an unforgettable one. Unexpectedly and unexplainably, as they were reclining at the table, Jesus gets up, picked up, the tools of a servant, the basin and the towel, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now again, it is hard. It is hard to understand or even imagine the impact, the shock and awe of the disciples. I mean, it's just hard to put into words, to to try to capture the emotions of the moment. The shame and the disbelief as they watch Jesus do what they would never have done. And this demonstration of love and service was more than they had ever seen nor could they ever imagine they would expect to see. And yet, beloved, as amazing as it was, it was only a precursor of what was to come. Love had been the theme of Jesus' life and his ministry. It was the word of the hour as they gathered there in the upper room. When Bible says in John chapter 13 and verse 1, when it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come, it was the hour of his departure. But it wasn't just the hour of his departure. It was the hour of his distress. And both in his departure and his distress, Jesus would emphasize the uncompromising necessity of the love of God. That was the hour. It was the hour to show love. It was the hour to demonstrate the necessity of love. It was the hour to demonstrate that love conquers all. The day of his hour that day is believed by most in church history to have been Thursday. Okay? Thursday. For the church has long held that Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room 
on that last day for that last supper on Thursday, the day before the crucifixion on Friday. Consequently, while the day of the crucifixion is called Good Friday, the day of the foot washing and the Last Supper is called what, Bob? Monday, Thursday. I can always count on Brother Bob. I always count on Murph. I had all confidence that he knew what that was. Monday, Monday, Thursday. And Monday is taken from the Latin mandatum, which is translated into English, command or mandate. It is Monday, Thursday, because it is the day where Jesus gave what he called, in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment, a new mandate. Love one another just as I have loved you. That's why it's called Monday, Thursday, because you have received a new command. Love one another as I love you. Now, what is this new command? This new command is the telling of what Jesus had just been showing. Do you see that? This new command is the preaching of what Jesus has just practiced. This new command is the wording of the substance of the Christian work, which is love. So what we have here is show and tell. Jesus showed, but now it's time to tell so that you don't get the message crossed. Monday, Thursday is about love. Jesus gathered with his disciples before the cross to exemplify for them the love of God through show and tell. But there's something even more important here, beloved. Yet Monday, Thursday is not only about love, but Monday, Thursday is also about loss. Why is that important? That is important because, beloved, love and loss often go together. Don't miss this. Christian love 
is often best demonstrated in loss, isn't it? Yes, yes. And what Jesus did for the disciples and what Jesus has done for the church on this day would show and tell that the Christian life is a life of love in the midst of loss. It's faithfulness in the Christian life. It's loving through loss. And this is what Jesus does. He experienced loss. But he exemplified love. He experienced loss. And yet, in experiencing the loss, he exemplified love. He experienced this loss. It's important to understand, beloved, that all was not well that Thursday that Jesus gathered with his disciples. And he was distressed about it. Everything wasn't well. You see that in verse 21. After saying these things, the Bible says that Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Beloved, all was not well in the upper room. All was not peaches and cream at the Last Supper. Jesus was heavy-hearted. Jesus was distressed. Discouragement was setting in. And he looked at his disciples after he had just washed their feet. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Listen. As if the foot washing hadn't been shocking enough, Jesus drops a bombshell in the midst of the gathering and declares, look around. There is a traitor among us. My beloved, the disciples, when they heard that, I know we, it's hard to just imagine how that, how that felt and how they heard those words. But they were dumbfounded. The foot, the foot washing was one thing. But to imagine that one of their own was against them, they looked at each other and said, no way, no way, no, no, I, we know these. 
We've been, we've done life together. We know these. And Peter, hearing the words of Jesus, leaned over to John, who was seated next to Jesus, and asked John if he would ask Jesus who it might be. Like my kids used to do. You can hear them outside the door. You ask him. No, you ask him. No, you ask him. I asked him last time. Normally, normally bold enough to speak for himself and everybody else. Never shying away. Not hesitant, not reluctant to ever speak. But suddenly, Peter is frozen. What was Peter afraid of? Was he wavering in his own heart? Did he, how did those words hit him? Had he doubts and fears? Peter saying to himself, does the Lord already know what I'm thinking? And John, closest to Jesus, leaned over to Jesus and asked the question that was on everybody's mind. Lord, who is it? Who is it? Now, beloved, like I said, we can only imagine the pins and needles and how uncomfortable each was as they waited for Jesus to give the answer. They were anxious. They were anxious to hear what Jesus said. And every second that Jesus hesitated to respond, the anxiety grew, and the anxiety grew into fear. Fear thinking at any moment that Jesus might call your name. Call my name. If the Lord Jesus walked into East Point Church this morning, and declared that one of us was going to betray him. Who would have enough confidence not to be afraid? The disciples were scared in fear and anxiety. They were distressed, and their lack of conviction troubled Jesus. It always had. It always had, beloved. Jesus was troubled by the disciples even before the disciples were. He was distressed, the Bible says. Why? Because 
He was troubled by the disciples. He was distressed in spirit because he was disappointed. There was a spiritual angst and a heavy heart. Jesus was heavy-hearted with disappointment and discouragement. This is, this is so interesting, beloved. I think it's so important for us to understand this morning. A disappointment is a common human experience. And Jesus did not exempt himself from it. He felt it acutely. And we all know it. We all experience it. Children disappoint parents and vice versa. Husbands disappoint wives, wives, husbands. Students disappoint teachers. Players disappoint coaches. Teams disappoint fans. Atlanta knows this as well as any. <laughs> but there's hope this morning. Jesus was disappointed, troubled by his disciples. Three years, three years, beloved. Three years of, of pouring into them. Three years of walking and talking and living together. They ate and they slept together underneath the stars. Good weather, bad weather, no weather at all. He had poured into them consistently, constantly, and still, as it says in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26, they were still of little faith. As it says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, they were still yet slow to believe. And in just a little while, as they leave the upper room, in just a little while, Jesus was going to ask them to stay awake and pray. And they couldn't even do that. He was troubled. He was troubled by the disciples in general. But he was particularly troubled by Peter and by Judas particularly troubled by Judas. Judas, beloved, was a trusted member of the group, had been with Jesus all this time. Judas was close to Jesus. No doubt, no doubt, they were both from the same tribe. Brothers almost. Like John, Judas, Judas was seated next to Jesus at the table. John on one side, Judas on the next. He had just washed Judas' feet. He fed Judas bread with his own hand. Don't miss this, beloved. Just because 
Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. It didn't make it easy for Jesus to witness it and experience it. And so distressed and so troubling was it that Jesus looked at Judas. And in verse 27, he says to Judas, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Do it now, Judas. No more charades. It's too troubling. It pains my heart. Get it done. Get it done. He was troubled by Judas. But he wasn't just troubled by Judas. He was troubled by Peter. Peter was a member of not just the group, but Peter was a member of the inner circle. I mean, no disciple, none of the disciples was with Jesus as much as Peter was. If ever a disciple accompanied Jesus, it was Peter. He was there. No one spoke more frequently with Jesus than Peter did. And yet, Peter was troubled. And what troubled Peter troubled Jesus. Troubled Jesus. Because he knew Peter was afraid. Peter was afraid, beloved. He was afraid. He was afraid of losing Jesus. Every time Jesus said, I'm going away, Peter said, no, you're not. He's afraid of losing Jesus. Peter was afraid of failing Jesus. And this fear gripped his heart. And Jesus knew this. And he knew this. And that's why he says to Peter in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, Peter, you are afraid. I know you are afraid. The devil knows you are afraid, and he is ready to pounce on you. He is ready to use your fear and pounce on you. He's going to use it against you, and it troubles me. It troubles me. He knew what was ahead for Peter, and it troubled him. He knew what was ahead for Judas, and it troubled him. He knew what was ahead for the disciples, and it troubled him. And he knew the trouble would only grow. Because after Judas left, do you see what the Bible says in John 13 and verse 30? Judas left, and it was night. It was dark. The darkness had begun to descend and the night had come, and beloved, it was dark. And how great 
would that darkness be? For what troubled our Lord most? It was not Peter. It was not the other disciples. It was not even Judas. What troubled our Lord the most was the present darkness that was beginning to settle and the presence and the work of the devil. It was getting real. Jesus was troubled by the work of the enemy. Beloved, I want us to make no mistake about this this morning. That there were evil forces at work. A sinister cloud had descended upon this company of men. And I know for us, it is hard to capture the growing intensity of the satanic assault that was taking place. But there was one person who felt it acutely. And that was Jesus. For Jesus was the one who knew exactly what was happening. He said so. He understood it. Verse 2 of chapter 13. The Bible says that the devil had already prayed upon Judas to incite him to his betrayal. He had already begun whispering in Judas's ear. He had already begun planting the seeds. And then, in verse 27, it says, Satan entered into Judas. All of his life, all of his ministry, Satan had been a real presence seeking to discourage, discredit, and destroy the works of Jesus. Every step of the way, Satan had been there seeking to undermine. And Jesus understood this. He understood this, and therefore he understood, beloved, that Judas was not the real enemy. That the enemy was the darkness that stood behind Judas. The enemy was the one who entered into Judas. That's what the Bible tells us, doesn't it? No, we don't want to pay too much attention to it, but this is what the Bible reminds us. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. He's not fighting against Judas. He knows this. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers 
in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And with Jesus now in the upper room, beloved, the enemy was fully engaged. Satan was fully engaged in the battle. And the fight had only just begun. It had only just begun at the Last Supper. It was going to carry on to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was going to keep carrying on all the way to the cross where you hear Jesus say in Matthew 27 and 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the enemy was pulling out all the stops. Beloved, this is what we term the dark night of the soul. This was the beginning of a dark night for our Lord. And that's why he was distressed. He knew what was coming. The seeds had been sown. And he knew what was coming. There was going to be a dark night for our Lord. It was troubling. And that is because, beloved, spiritual oppression and attack always is. It always is. It's debilitating. It's distressing. It is a heaviness on your heart. It is an overwhelming of your soul. When the enemy attacks, disappointments are magnified. And however disappointed he is in, in Judas, it only is magnified. When the enemy comes, but when the enemy comes and these disappointments are magnified, you feel the weight. You feel the weight of the responsibility for others around you. Whether it's disciples, whether it's your family, whether it's your children, whether it's your friends, whether it's the church. This is what the enemy does. And so, beloved, listen, you, you read this, and I don't want us to take lightly the reality of spiritual warfare in the life of Jesus. I know, I know we call him Lord, and we worship him, and we think about his deity most often. But, beloved, Jesus was a man. And as a man, he was attacked by Satan like no one else. And the enemy came in. He came in, as he always does, seeking to steal, seeking to kill, seeking to destroy. None of us, and none of us, none of us are exempt from it. Peter had no idea what was coming. And he says, Lord, where you go, I want to go. And Jesus says, oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry. The enemy isn't going to let you off either. Yeah. 
None of us, beloved, none of us are exempt from it. I don't, I, don't, I don't mind telling you how active and real these assaults are in my own life. Real, beloved. We're real. When you feel the weight of life, spiritual weight, family weight, church weight, the weight of expectations, your own, and the expectations of others, the, the expectations unmet, the un expectations unrealistic. Spiritual enemy comes in when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged. And I know how that feels. I've been there. Sometimes it seems like I live there. You get emotional and there's no one around. You get discouraged and no one has said anything. Your faults are magnified. Your failures are exaggerated. And the devil makes you feel like you're losing. And no one cares. No one cares. This is what he did. In the midst of this grand occasion, when the devil comes in and he says, Oh no, Jesus, you're losing. You're losing. Judas is leaving. You're losing. Peter is on the brink. You're losing. The other disciples are confused, and they don't know what is going on. You are losing. The darkness was selling in, and the warfare was on. Beloved, as grand as an occasion as that was, that thing was falling apart. It was falling apart. And in the midst of losing it all, Jesus looked at his disciples in the face of it all falling apart. Jesus looked at his disciples and reminded them and reminds us this morning, beloved, love wins. Love wins. Love wins. This is what Jesus was doing in the upper room. Even in the midst, in the face of Satan's attack, Jesus was setting the stage for Satan's defeat, even while suffering loss. Jesus was setting the stage for victory. Because he not only suffered loss, but he exemplified love and reminded them that here's the key. Here's the key to it all. Here's the key. Beloved, listen. There are no quick solutions to the attacks of the enemy. Okay? 
there are none. Anybody who tells you so, they have no idea. They hadn't been there. They don't know. There are no quick solutions. Why? Because Satan doesn't give up easily. Contrary to what some of you might have heard, Satan is not a quitter. Okay? He doesn't quit. And for Jesus, this night, here with the disciples, was only the beginning of sorrows. But in the midst of the darkness, in the face of the devil's attack, what does Jesus say? He taught his disciples and reminds us this morning that Monday, Thursday isn't only just about loss, but first and foremost, it's about love. It's about love. Judas had left. Judas, Judas is gone. The night had come. The darkness was settling in. And Jesus looked at his disciples, knowing the trouble in his own heart and the trouble that they all would soon face. He said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Listen, beloved, the key in fighting the enduring attacks of the devil is love. What is the last thing that Satan wants us to do is to love each other. Where is the strength and the testimony and the power of the Christian community? It is in love one for another. When are we most like Jesus? When we are loving one another. And notice what Jesus calls it. He calls it a new commandment. A new commandment, beloved. Now, beloved, it is not new in that it's never been heard before. Because it has been heard before. Remember what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6? We already read it in verse 5, right? Love God with all your heart. And then in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, this command to love God and to love each other, this command is not new. But it is new. It is new in that it had never been shown like this before. This is show and tell, beloved. This is not just tell. Never before had the Lord stooped down to watch the disciples' feet. Never before had the Lord himself come to demonstrate the love that he commanded. This is a new thing that God was doing. This is a new kind of love. This is a love that Jesus first shows and then tells. 
It's a new love. It's a new love in that it is creating a new humanity. Now it is not just Jews loving Jews. Now it's Jews loving Gentiles and Gentiles loving Jews. It is a new humanity. It is a love that's forming a new community. Now it is a community not based on ethnic lines, but now it's a community based in faith. It is a new humanity. It is a new community because it is under a new covenant. Now it is not a covenant of the law. Now it is a covenant of grace. Grace. What's the charter? What's the charter for this new love? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This not your own doing. It is the gift of of God. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. What did he give? Christ. So that you and I might be saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's the love of God. Because God is doing a new thing. Creating a new humanity. A new community. And a new covenant. That's why he's given us this new commandment. And this commandment defeats the enemy, beloved. This, this, this is what defeats the enemy. This is the love that is described in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. This is it. This is a demonstration of it. This is the love that asks, what would Jesus do? If ever, if ever, you should ask yourself the question, how should I love my brother and sister, then ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Ask yourself the question, how has Jesus treated me? And so we see that this love is patient, isn't it? It's patient. It's patient because... We don't require that people have to change right now. But we give them space because we give them grace. Because that's what the Lord has given to us. This love is kind. This love is kind. It doesn't speak demeaning words. It's not mean. But it's encouraging. It is life-giving. Why? Because that is what the Lord, our Savior, has given to us. This love is selfless. Reminds us that it's not about me. It doesn't make me the center of attention, but it points to the God in others. It glorifies the God in others because this is what our Lord has done. Reminding us of our worth in him. And Jesus knows, Jesus understands that this is the type of love that turns losses into wins. This is the type of love that turns defeat into victory, beloved. 
listen, listen. Anyone, anyone can love when you're winning. That's easy to do. Biblical love, biblical love is loving when you're losing. People are easy to love when they're winning. Jesus demonstrates love and loss. How do you love them when they're losing? That's biblical love. That's the love that Jesus calls on. This is the love that's going to turn Peter around. This is love that's going to unite the disciples again. This is the love that won't let you go. For in the midst of your going through, can you love others as Christ has loved you? And the answer is, yes, you can. Yes, we can. Yes, we must, beloved. That is the only way. That's the only way that you pierce this present darkness. Because the enemy comes and he wants you to believe that you are not loved. He wants you to believe that no one cares. This is the love that overcomes that darkness. This is the community that overcomes that discouragement. This is the faith that overcomes that despair. This is the commandment that overcomes the devil. When we love one another, when we are gracious to one another, when we are forgiving one another, when we are living as Christ lived, when we love as Christ has loved us, when we forgive as Christ has forgiven us, this is how we win in the midst of loss. Beloved, listen, listen to me carefully. The enemy isn't quitting. He desires even this morning to sift many of us How do we overcome that? We love one another. We love one another. I need you to love me. For the enemy would have me accept that you love me. Your neighbors we need to love each other for the enemy would have us if we don't 
love one another. Let's pray.